0: Hello and welcome back to our discussion of Ray Bradbury. This week we are embarking upon Something Wicked This Way Comes, which is a novel that I've been kind of looking forward to talking about for quite a while. Um, it's got to be one of my favorite Ray Bradbury novels, even though it's a bit of a guilty pleasure in some ways. Um, like it does not have all of the, you know, weight and, and significance of something like Fahrenheit 451 or you know even all of the creativity that we've saw seen in his short stories like in the illustrated main collection um but at the same time it resonates with me there's something kind of important significant about this book that I'm hoping to get at in this discussion somehow um on some level first and foremost we have to acknowledge just what it is like this is a Halloween novel um In all of its senses, uh, like in the same way that A Christmas Carol is like the quintessential book about Christmas and has been adapted a thousand times into various sorts of Christmas stories, I feel like this is the quintessential novel about Halloween. Um, And on the one hand, I realize that that's kind of a weird thing to say. You know, Halloween is sort of associated with the whole business of horror and horror You know, cinema, horror, television, etc., etc. You know, every television show likes to do their Halloween episode with a couple of extra jump scares and just some silly, schlocky horror tropes. You know, Bob's Burgers consistently does Halloween episodes like this, and you'll see it elsewhere. Um, So saying that, like, there's one novel that is about Halloween is kind of ridiculous. It's like Halloween was there before these things, and, you know, they. As much as, you know, we we have, like, books that talk about these holidays, it's so rare that one actually encounters this subject in this way. Um, I mean, heck, there's a movie series literally called Halloween, which has sort of set itself up as the quintessential Halloween, like, you know, franchise or something, and yet that one has never resonated with me the same way that this one does, Um, because on some level, a truly horror narrative misses the point of Halloween. Um, And Bradbury, I think, captures that here. On some level, I wanted to to time my lectures so that this was, you know, so that we managed to discuss something wicked this way comes at roughly the same time as Halloween rolled around. Then obviously that's not the case. I'm clearly like two weeks and change late. Um, But at the same time, I want to kind of talk about it with the advantage of hindsight here. Like, having just done Halloween, having sort of recognized the cultural events surrounding it, I want to sort of talk about how Bradbury gets at this, because on the one hand, there are horror dimensions to this novel. It is at times scary. We are dealing with, you know, darkness and, you know, a titanic battle between the forces of good and evil, but all done in, like, costume and shadow, and, you know, it is essentially a story about a dark carnival that just rolls into town and, you know, seems to be affecting the people of that town in some strange and potentially inexplicable ways. It's got all the substance of a horror novel. You could see Stephen King writing this book but this isn't a Stephen King book, and it isn't a horror novel. At the end of the day, Bradbury, his relationship to horror has always been more complicated than that, um, and we've seen touches of it. Like in the Martian Chronicles, we see you know numerous stories that sort of play with the idea of the imagination and you know how it can play tricks on us. It is very interested in sort of the the darkness of the human mind, um, but at the same time, the the story in that collection that has the most to do with horror imagery and horror iconography is Usher 2, which isn't scary. Like I criticized it specifically for being kind of over the top and not giving, you know, the, the beats an opportunity to land. You know, it's a story about Poe, but it isn't a Poe story. It's a story that expresses its admiration for horror, but isn't itself a horror story. Um, Likewise, in Fahrenheit 451, there's a lot of darkness in that novel, but nobody would confuse it for horror. It's all much more philosophical in that respect. It's all very much in that dystopian sense of horror. Like, it's not scary in the way that, you know, monsters and mummies and, you know, things that go bump in the night are scary. It's scary in the sense of, we don't want the world to turn out this way, but we are concerned and apprehensive that it might. Now, the Illustrated Man collection seems to come the closest to horror. We get some legit horror iconography there. The Illustrated Man himself, the, the whole, you know, framing device there, is rooted in horror. Here is this guy who is kind of scary and offbeat. He's abnormal. Um, we encounter him. We have this conversation with him. And then things start happening that are inexplicable. The, the images on his body come to life. And finally, we, it is revealed that he will, in fact, murder us if given the chance. That's horror. In some sense. Like, it's shock short story horror, not the sort of sustained horror we're used to from the movies, but horror nonetheless. And quite a few stories in that collection go even deeper. Like, I emphasized how much I love The City as a horror story. Um, how, you know, it is, at the end of the day, more science fiction than horror, but its iconography and its sort of uh, the way that it sticks in your mind is very horror in its own right. Um, likewise stories like the Velt, or stories like uh, the one where the you know kids are, are playing at a Martian invasion and turn out to be engaged in Martian invasion there's elements of horror there and stories like kaleidoscope or um, what is the name of the story? No other day or morning, like the one where the guy just floats out into space on his own because he's no longer believes in the reality of anything. You know, that has that creeping, cloying horror, that claustrophobic Japanese-style horror, the horror that just emphasizes the business of being alone and being totally detached from reality. Um, Bradbury is, in fact, getting at this sort of horror, these horror elements, but again, he's not interested in the typical trappings of horror, the you know the, the business that we usually associate with horror. So first off, let's talk about this. Let's talk about what makes horror horror and why something wicked this way comes like where it fits in comparison. Um, And on the one hand, I am not qualified to talk about this. Like, I have a deep and abiding interest in horror. I love writing horror, but I also don't read it, typically. Like, I wouldn't call myself a scholar of horror cinema or literature or anything like that, because honestly, I find most of that stuff to be not great. Um, And that's not necessarily a criticism. It just means that I have a different interaction, a different sort of relationship to horror media than i suspect most people do but again i suspect horror media hits everybody a little bit differently um so on the one hand we recognize that there's like different kinds of horror we get the sort of you know schlocky you know like slasher horror of something like friday the 13th um probably at its best in something like you know ridley scott's alien we have the sort of slow burn creeping horror something that we might associate with the better stephen king novels um or you know one of my favorites is is in the second novel in the area x trilogy by jeff vandermeer um in authority it's just very much about like sort of building slowly until you get this big final like like explosion at the end um We have horror that is sort of specifically genre-located, like we've got the high schoolers dealing with horror, like you see in something like Stephen King's It or in something like uh, Joe Hill's Lock and Key. Um, We've got, you know, sort of major deal psychological horror, um, the sort of thing that that you run into in something like Silent Hill, the video game series. Um, or something like The Ring, I suppose. Um, You've got the body horror in something like Saw, or, you know, in in like a David Cronenberg movie. Um, Like, there's a lot of different kinds of horror out there, and we interact with these things in different ways. Some people can't handle psychological horror, but are all about, you know, gore and violence and body horror. Other people can't handle the body horror, but are all about the psychological horror. And on some level, you know, we have talked about horror media in such a way that it's kind of lost what Bradbury is interested in here. Remember, Bradbury loves Edgar Allan Poe he's written two stories about Edgar Allan Poe at this point, you know, he is absolutely like worshipping at the altar of all of these creative minds, these sort of horror writers that, you know, like Ambrose Bierce, like, uh, you know, L. Frank Baum to some degree. For Bradbury, horror is wrapped up in the business of fantasy and the business of speculative fiction generally. So when we talk horror, And we usually are thinking about, you know, movie franchises, Halloween, and and Friday the 13th, and, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, about Saw, or about Annihilation, or about, you know, like any of the, the sort of Jordan Peele offerings that we've seen recently. On some level, that's where our brain goes, and that's not where it's supposed to be, when Bradbury talks about horror. When Bradbury talks about horror, he is looking squarely at Edgar Allan Poe. And on some level, we all admit, yeah, Edgar Allan Poe, clearly horror. But Edgar Allan Poe does horror differently than all of these other works that we tend to think about in general. Like, Edgar Allan Poe is writing short stories, not movies, not video games. And as a consequence, our interaction with him is going to be fundamentally different. Horror in writing is always going to look different than horror in you know, other media, just because when you are dealing with, like, a novel, something on the page, your interactions and the things that you make, that make you afraid are different. Like, you can't do jump scares in a novel. It's not possible. Like, you can surprise, you can, you know, to have something unexpected happen, and you can slow burn, slow build until those unexpected things do start to happen. But you can't do jump scares the same way that like Halloween can, you know, just have someone tap like uh Jamie Lee Curtis on the shoulder and like she immediately flips around the audience jumps in their seat. That's not possible. You can't do a jump scare the way that a video game like Outlast or Silent Hill can do a jump scare. Because again, there's nothing immediate about this in a novel. Which brings us to how you scare people in books. Um, and again, we do have different approaches here. Like Stephen King is a master of the slow burn sort of approach. Like you're going to introduce small horror elements gradually, but building up to this big, like, all guns blazing reveal where everything goes nuts or, you know, the, the forces of evil seem to, to really, like, have control of the whole situation. Um, But this is just one approach and probably part of the reason why Stephen King has been adapted so many times and why he's as popular as he is, is because it is an approach that translates to all of these other media. Um, It is an approach that can be rendered on a movie screen or in a video game. It's something that is about the pacing more than it is about the actual business of telling a story. Um, It has more to do with the medium of storytelling in all of its forms than it does with the medium of writing specifically. Whereas Poe, as much as he is very much a master of the slow burn in his own right, and as much as his stories also have this pacing that delivers this big, scary payoff in so many of his cases... Honestly, Poe doesn't scare with scary stuff as often as he scares with the dread of that scary stuff. Like, think of The Pit and the Pendulum, for example, because this is sort of like a perfect encapsulation of of what Poe is doing there and, and how it does and does not translate to other media. Like, there is, in fact, a Pit and the Pendulum movie. It's one of those wonderful, like, Vincent Price things that it's just totally schlocky and ridiculous and the pendulum looks absolutely absurd um like when i saw it as a little kid i, I like i was a little kid and i was not frightened by this like I, I just thought it was hilarious in part because i already knew the story cold at this point but also because just vincent price oh my gosh he's so wonderful um but in the pit in the pendulum what makes that story so scary is the inevitability of it the fact that we know that there is going to be a death that this person is going to be killed, that the, you know, the writer can build our dread by explaining in painful detail every part of the descent of the pendulum, every part of the walls closing in, forcing this person towards the pit. This is what Poe is so excellent at, so frequently, and we can see it in a lot of his other stories as well. Um, But importantly for Poe, the fact that there is no context works to his advantage here. See, when you watch a movie, you are presented with imagery. You will naturally contextualize that imagery however you can, which is why a lot of horror directors, especially recently, tend to pull tricks in order to decontextualize the horror that's going on. Like, you'll see horror scenes where, like, all of a sudden the main character is isolated in a dark place and you don't know what's going on or I think of like Sam Raimi's recent movie uh, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness and you've got that great little horror sequence where like Scarlet Witch is ripping through all of the alternate version or alternate universe versions of various like Marvel characters and we get Professor X going into, you know, the Scarlet Witch's mind and trying to release her. And all of a sudden, everything is a white field, which sets up the, the kill that is getting ready to come. You know, Raimi does this often in many of his movies. Um, he will isolate the characters, decontextualize them, put them in a place that is disconnected from the rest of the world around them, and let the horror play out without explanation. We can't understand the rules of this universe because the universe has radically changed in the time that we have seen. Poe does this as well. By isolating his characters, by presenting them totally divorced from the rest of their surroundings, and importantly, because it's purely a matter of language, it is easier to do this in written prose than it is in a video game or in a movie where you necessarily have other context around you, Poe can effectively disorient us and make the horror that much more inexplicable and that much more dreadful. Um, Now, this is not the only technique that Poe uses, though. Like we have these sort of big set piece horrors in Poe, we've got the pit and the pendulum, like both as objects, not just as the story. Um, we've got the all of this setup for the mask of the red death, like the the series of you know different colored rooms and the clock that chimes the hour. Um, we've got the the whole business of the telltale heart, the fact that the character comes in and like just opens the lantern just a little bit to, sh- to shine one ray of light on the eye that he is so angry about, and then the heart beating after uh, he's committed the murder. And even in the cask of Edmontiato, the slow bricking up um, of, of the victim in the, the wine cellar. Like, these are the big things we associate with Poe. And on the one hand, they have this tendency towards repetition, patterns, and those patterns leading to a greater increased sense of dread. But on the other hand, we also have these things that stick in the mind, the images themselves. You know, when we think of Poe's writing, we think of the pacing on the one hand, but we also think of these images that are somehow internally scary, just intrinsically frightening, things that sort of tap into our own inclinations to fear you know, Poe himself was apparently very afraid of being prematurely buried, something that happened fairly frequently in the 19th century. And many of his stories sort of come back to this theme, the premature burial being the obvious one, but Usher being another. Um, even the telltale heart kind of taps into that fear. Um, but we also have the fear of premature burial in something like the Cask of the Montiato, where, you know, Fortunato is bricked up gradually, or even in The Mask of the Red Death, we have this indication that everyone is dead and doesn't know it at this point, a sort of reversal of that theme. Um, Poe dwells and deals with these strong images because they reflect the things that we are afraid of, things that should be dead and aren't, things that aren't dead but have been buried as though they were. Um, people who have this sort of obsessive compulsion to murder or people who think they are safe and are themselves murdered eventually. Um, Poe traffics in this imagery as well as he traffics in the the sort of pacing, the the gradual development of of these, you know, like this gradual revelation, the gradual like appreciation of the dread that is coming. Um, Bradbury, as we've said before, isn't great at the pacing. But he is great at the imagery. And that is very much what he's trying to duplicate here. Horror images, which are images in language like we have obviously tons of horror images that also stick in the mind in the the likes of the cinematic sphere like obviously there are scenes that are just burned into the collective consciousness of people interested in horror media you have the alien bursting out of the out of the chest of of John Hurt in the original alien movie you've got you know the the like the the guy performing the autopsy on the body that then devours his hands in you know, the thing you've got the various kills of Jason or Freddy Krueger or Mike Myers. Um, Like all of these images are very provocative in their own right. We remember them keenly. Like, As much as, you know, horror movies are often, especially like back in the 90s and 2000s when they just were churning these things out like crazy, um, a lot of these sort of horror franchises were built on a couple of key images the door slamming and paranormal activity, or, you know, the various creative kills in the Final Destination movies. Like, we have a sort of lexicon for this sort of imagery, but. On the one hand, what makes horror imagery scary in film or in a visual medium, you know, is the fact that, like, it can be rendered evocative, it can be realistic, and it can sort of tap into the things that we see around us in everyday life. One of the things that Poe uses, and that Bradbury uses as well, is a language that gives us just flashes of this horror imagery. We aren't given the whole picture of The Pit and the Pendulum. What we are given is the description, the repeated language there, and our imagination rushes to fill in the gaps, making it all that much more scary. On some level, I can't imagine how something like The Telltale Heart would be rendered on film. Like, people have done it and usually failed, in the same way that I laugh at our version of The Pit and the Pendulum, um, you know, the, the Vincent Price movie. But what specifically makes Poe scary is the fact that we don't need that visual aid. The pit is scary not because you can see it, but because you can't. Because you can imagine the feeling of it, something that the movies can't convey. So you can imagine the pendulum descending, and it is frightening because you give it the details. Because when you actually look at the real pendulum in real life, it isn't nearly as scary. Like, when you have a similar sort of representation in film, like one of the saw traps or something, usually the whole thing is over-designed. It's all spikes and monsters and, like, rusted metal. That's how, you know, you evoke this sense of horror, this sense of of fear for the trap that is about to, to be triggered. But the swinging pendulum? That's not scary all by itself. What makes it scary is Poe's description and the fact that you put in all the details. You recognize what the fear means. You take the abstraction of Poe's language and fill it out with your own imagined horror. That's what makes it work. Um, And that's what makes Bradbury's prose here work as well. Bradbury isn't interested in the slow burn kind of horror, especially not here in Something Wicked This Way Comes. Like Every now and again, you'll see it. Again, the city does it really well. Uh, the Veldt ha- like teases the, the, old, the big ending pretty well. Um, Bradbury is kind of getting better at it as time goes on, I suspect. But again, that's not what we're doing here. When I said, when I started out by saying that this is the quintessential Halloween novel and that we usually confuse Halloween stuff with horror, what I wanted to emphasize is that on the one hand, Bradbury gets the power of horror imagery. We've seen it multiple times at this point. Bradbury, like Poe, is interested in these evocative images, these sort of snapshots of the brain where we fill in all of the details and turn it into something meaningful. Maybe it's the city that devours the people who are going there with all of its various death traps maybe it's the lions picking over the carcass of the parents even though the parents don't realize it at this point um, maybe it's something as simple and straightforward as you know Guy Montag coming back to his house as the bombers scream overhead but one of the things that you'll notice is that Bradbury augments these moments these images with his own distinctive style and his own style of talking about these images And it's very distinct. Like, honestly, it's probably one of the things that people criticize Bradbury the most over, is the way that he uses language. And I want to stop here. Because on the one hand, this is exactly what I mean by the horror-slash-Halloween aspect of this novel. Bradbury isn't doing horror the way that we usually assume horror is supposed to look like. You know, on the cover of this novel, my little random, like, poor 90s version from Avon Fiction, says the incomparable masterwork of the Dark Fantastic. And the idea of the Dark Fantastic is different from horror. But it isn't a difference we necessarily appreciate very easily. Like we could probably point to certain things that are dark fantasy as opposed to horror. Something maybe like the Dark Crystal or you know the Neverending Story. At least the movie version. The the book is a different different animal for sure. Um, and we could we could potentially make that distinction. Um, Bradbury isn't doing either one of these though. Um, I wouldn't call him to call his work here dark fantasy any more than I would call it horror what I would call it is spooky, perhaps? Something else? Again, what makes Halloween Halloween is the fact that it is a layer of fear, a layer of horror, but it is also a layer that exists simultaneously with a layer of, like, kiddish, childish, good fun. You know, the whole business of Halloween, at least, you know, since the 90s, since I've been a kid, and certainly in Bradbury's day as well, is that this is about trick-or-treating. You know, a whole bunch of little, little kids, like under the age of 10 in many cases, dress up as various monsters, superheroes, you know, jobs, whatever, and they go around from house to house shouting trick-or-treat with no expectation that anyone is going to pull any tricks whatsoever, they get candy for their troubles, and then they walk around to the next house. Like, there is something scary about this. You know, the whole thing happens at night, which is at a time that kids are usually not allowed to be awake. Everyone is in costume, so you can't necessarily recognize everybody at first glance. Like, I remember, you know, people coming to the door when I was a kid not knowing who they were the first time, or needing a moment to recognize who exactly they were. Um, but at the same time, it isn't scary. Like nobody is really afraid on Halloween unless they go out of their way to be afraid. If they go to a horror movie, if they, you know, watch an alien or Halloween movie marathon. Halloween isn't about terror. It is about fear as entertainment. It is about willfully scaring yourself, because sometimes that's fun. And as a consequence, it's about both things. The fear, and the fun. It is something childish in that respect. It's the haunted house approach to horror and not the, you know, deep, bloody, gory approach to horror or the deep psychological approach to horror. It is a spook show. And that's what Bradbury is doing in this novel as well, presenting not horror, Not something earnestly scary, although it's frequently unnerving and has many of those images that get stuck in the mind because, again, he is a student of Poe and he is recognizing that same love of the abstract image as potential avenue for fear and for dread and for trepidation. But it is both fun and fearful. It is about a couple of kids who get into trouble because they go looking for trouble. They find fear because they want it. And this is a kind of significant distinction here, because again, there are scary moments in this book, but that isn't the main thing that Bradbury is trying to do here. We do get a good bit of the dread, although that dread is largely free-floating and un- and not sort of located anywhere in particular. We get a lot of those images, which again, Bradbury is a master of here. But what we don't have is the tension, the build and the fall, the natural rises and peaks. This story is kind of a mess on that front, and that's kind of why I love it. So again, We need to talk about Bradbury's style here. And on the one hand, it's kind of ridiculous that we haven't spent a whole lot of time talking about Bradbury's style. Like, the fact that somehow we've managed to get through a whole short story collection and you know one novel and one hybrid of the two without really spending a whole lot of time talking about Bradbury's style. Like, every now and again, I, I have my moments where I'm like, okay, and now I'm just going to gush over exactly what he's doing in this particular scene or at this particular time. You know, I've done that several times at this point, and I regret nothing. Like, I, I love Bradbury's approach. I love his style. Um, But now I really want to focus on it, because on the one hand, it is sort of exaggerated here in Something Wicked This Way Comes. But on the other hand, I've never read anything after Bradbury's work in the 60s that wasn't this kind of exaggerated. Um, I think Bradbury's style develops more in this direction as time goes on. This is more bradbury than the work that is typically considered Bradbury's finest. As much as I love Fahrenheit 451 dearly, and I consider it the greatest of his, of his novels, it isn't his in the same way that this book, Something Wicked This Way Comes, is truly his. If anything, I feel like this is the most typical of Bradbury's particular bent of mind, um, even more than any of the other works that we've talked about so far. And again, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's better as a consequence it's just more typical of him. It shows off his particular inclination to write more than many of the other works do. And at the same time, we're going to look at this and I will probably find obvious allusions to other stuff that we've talked about for sure. But I want to take this moment and look at three specific scenes, three passages of description that Bradbury offers to us here at the outset of this novel that both kind of misses the sort of things that we would come to expect from horror. It definitely misses a lot of the pacing issues and a lot of the things that we would consider just foundational concepts of good creative writing. But at the same time, I want to emphasize how evocative it actually is. Uh, So again, three scenes, and importantly, I want to pick three scenes that are all coming from different characters' perspectives as much as possible because on the one hand, it's clear that certain characters think and describe things in certain ways. Charles Halloway, especially in this novel, has a lot of very deep metaphysical, philosophical sort of ruminations. And I do want to talk about him, but we'll save him for last. Uh, But I also want to talk about both sort of the perspective of the boys when they encounter various things, Jim Nightshade and Will Halloway, Will Halloway especially, since Jim is always a little step removed from us as as the audience, um, as well as a sort of broad descriptive passage. So let's start with the boys. Um, I'm looking at chapter six, And this is the chapter where Jim and Will have just been to the library and they got the whole spiel about the white and black hats, which we will definitely come back around to. Um, But Jim gets distracted. They're walking down the street and they, like, hop into this little side lane, which Will already has some associations with. Um, So this is page 27 in my little 1997 edition, chapter 6. Until this summer... And this is kind of from Will's perspective that we are getting the narration here. Until this summer, it had been an ordinary street where they stole peaches, plums, and apricots each in its day. But late in August, while they were monkey climbing for the sourest apples, the thing happened which changed the houses, the taste of the fruit and the very air within the gossiping trees. Will, it's waiting. Maybe something's happening, hissed Jim. Maybe something is. Will swallowed hard and felt Jim's hand pinch his arm. For it was no longer the street of the apples or plums or apricots. It was the one house with a window at the side. And this window, Jim said, was a stage with a curtain, the shade, that is, up. And in that room, on that strange stage, were the actors who spoke mysteries, mouthed wild things, laughed, sighed, murmured so much. So much of it was whispers Will did not understand. Just one last time, Will. You know it won't be the last, Will replies. Jim's face was flushed, his cheeks blazing, his eyes green glass fire. He thought of that night, then picking the apples. Jim suddenly crying softly, oh, there! And Will, hanging to the limbs of the tree, tight-pressed, terribly excited, staring in at the theater, that per- peculiar stage where people, all unknowing, flourished shirts above their heads, let fall clothes to the rug, stood raw and animal-crazy, naked like shivering horses, hands out to touch each other. What are they doing? thought Will. Why are they laughing? What's wrong with them? What's wrong? He wished the light would go out, but he hung tight to the suddenly slippery tree and watched the bright window theater, heard the laughing, and numb at last, let go, slid, fell, Lay dazed, then stood in dark, gazing up at Jim, who still clung to his high limb. Jim's face, hearth-flushed, cheeks fire-fuzzed, lips parted, stared in. Jim! Jim! Come down! But Jim did not hear. Jim! And when Jim looked down at last, he saw Will as a stranger below with some silly request to give off living and come down to earth. So Will ran off, alone, thinking too much, thinking nothing at all, not knowing what to think. Will... Please. Will looked at Jim now with the library books in his hands. We've been to the library. Ain't that enough? Jim shook his head. Carry these for me. He handed Will his books and trotted softly off under the hissing, whispering trees. Three houses down, he called back, Will, know what you are? Darn old dimwit Episcopal Baptist. Then Jim was gone. Now that's the better part of the chapter. Like I read nearly the whole thing. And we should emphasize most of the chapters in this novel are roughly that short, if not shorter. Like, Bradbury isn't interested in the sustained narrative that we would expect from a novel. He is interested in showing showing us these snapshot scenes. Just these images of Jim and Will hanging out together, of Charles Holloway sweeping the library. These sort of emotional moments. These just beats that might not even rate a full scene in a movie. But what I want to emphasize is that within these beats, these sort of disconnected moments that sort of weave this narrative together, the individual instants are disconnected as well. Like, this is probably a bad habit in my own writing as well, because I'm almost certainly copying Bradbury, but you'll notice that he uses commas all the time. Like, Bradbury has virtually no respect for English grammar in a lot of these passages. His descriptions especially are just wild just colorful and full of imagery both like in the sense of visual imagery but also with the other senses as well. Notice that description of Will looking in the window seeing these people naked and having sex for the first time. You know that peculiar stage where people comma, all unknowing, comma, flourished shirts above their heads, comma, let fall close to the rug, comma, stood raw and animal crazy, comma, naked, comma, like shivering horses, comma, hands out to touch each other. Likewise, just a little while later, when Will looks up at Jim, he says, you know, Jim's face, comma, hearth flushed, comma, cheeks fire-fuzzed, comma, lips parted, comma, stared in. Like, there's this wild pacing to the sentence, sentences these broken staccato like images of just one glimpse one tiny indication jim's face hearth flushed again as though like heated by a fireplace cheeks fire fuzzed again you know as though burned lips parted stared in like there's the rhythm to this or rather a syncopation an arrhythmicness to this but at the same time as it's very evocative and very potent and full of these very like clear images, these clear visual, this clear visual language, you know, we see these, this language stood raw and animal crazy, common naked, as he says about the people in the window, you know, it's very evocative. We get a very strong image, but that strength of the description also kind of stands in the way of the action. Like we don't, understand what's going on in this scene in many cases i had to read this chapter like three times before i figured out what exactly was going on because the only indication between that we have moved from the present to the past is just four words or rather five he thought of that night them picking the apples jim suddenly crying softly oh there and then will's hanging to the tree right in the middle of this already extremely brief chapter, this extremely brief scene, we get a scene within a scene. Like, here's Jim and Will walking home. Jim says, hey, we should go down the other street. Or rather, he just says Will, and Will says no, because we already know what that means. But Will tells us this sort of flashback image in the process. Like, Will is walking down the street with jim jim is like okay can we go down this street will is like no i don't want to go down that street and jim goes down anyway carrying my books for me um and will remembers before jim even gets to this point what happened the last time they went down the street back in august when they were picking apples and they were climbing the tree and realized that they could look in the window and see these people having sex totally without you know being just like covered up or, or in private at all And on the one hand, we get this. The emotional value of this scene is communicated even if we don't notice that there's a flashback going on here. Um, So on the one hand, again, we should stress, Bradbury's evocative, vivid language does in fact get in the way of the plotting, the, the actual action of the story. He is more interested in the effect, the sort of visceral, emotional reaction, the sort of sensory image that he is conveying to us more than he is interested in the logic of the scene which again is something we've seen before Um, frequently bradbury will go on these sorts of wild descriptive passages getting in the way of the way that the actual action works out To again sort of return to that image, you know, back in Fahrenheit 451, when Guy Montag originally walks into his house in the dark and finds out that Mildred has taken too many sleeping pills, presumably as a suicide attempt, the images become disconnected and disorienting. He kicks the bottle and it tinkles in the darkness, the bombers scream overhead... In Fahrenheit 451, I think it actually works better. It emphasizes that Montag is disoriented, that he doesn't know what's going on, that he comes home, is bombarded by all these feelings, all these senses, all these things that happen to him, and yet he can't put it together any more than we can. But here, in this story, it doesn't work as well, I don't think. It is disorienting. We're trying to like follow what's going on with Will and Jim, and in fact, the vivid, evocative imagery is getting in the way. Um, we don't understand what's going on. We get an image, we get all of the pieces we need to put it together, but we have to read very closely in order to put that all into one you know, image, to put it all together. And God forbid you miss the five words that indicate that we're in a flashback here. Um, Bradbury, as a writer, is can be extremely potent as long as we're dealing with a simplistic plot and structure. But when we start complicating it with the likes of flashbacks, things become harder to parse just because, again, the evocativeness of his imagery can frequently overpower the action, can overpower the logic of a scene. We need both on some level. Bradbury is very much more interested in the visceral reactions more than he is in the actual plotting and the actual logic, and that's occasionally good and occasionally bad. But it's something that consistently describes this novel specifically. Bradbury will frequently just let the logic go on holiday. Let the evocativeness of the imagery, let the sort of horrific images or metaphorical language get in the way to the point that it is all that you can see. Um, So let's take a look at one of my favorite descriptive passages here. This is in chapter 12. Um, The boys have snuck out to see the carnival set up shop. Um, and we get this pretty crazy series of, of images and, and descriptions here. Um, so this is roughly page 50. Uh, it's so quiet, whispered Will. The train just stood in the middle of the dry autumn field. No one in the locomotive, no one in the tender. no one in any of the cars behind, all black under the moon and just the small sounds of its metal cooling, ticking on the rails. On the one, si- on the one hand, here we are treated to emptiness. Like, the whole thing is there, but it is abandoned. We don't know where the people are. St, said Jim, I feel them moving in there. Which already we should be asking questions about. Like, how does Jim feel the moving in there? They're on a hillside way far away. They're getting this sense that they are moving, but at the same time they can't see them. Like, how does Jim feel this? But Bradbury doesn't care. He's already moving on. Will felt the cat fuzz on his body bramble up by the thousands. So we do get a little bit, like, okay, so the the hairs are standing up on Will's arm. They have a sense, but they can't explain it. And again, this is something that Bradbury is going to use a lot in this novel. Frequently, the characters are going to have these sorts of intuitions, these feelings, this sense of dread unaccompanied by the same evocative details and images that Bradbury is usually inclined to use. On the one hand, Bradbury will drown us, inundate us with those powerful images. On the other hand, he's doing a lot of hand-waving here, um, something that will frequently be frustrating. You think they mind us watching, Will asks? Maybe, said Jim happily. Then why the noisy calliope? When I figure that, Jim smiled, I'll tell you. Look, whisper. As if exhaling itself straight down from the sky, a vast moss-green balloon touched at the moon. It hovered 200 yards above and away, quietly riding the wind. Now, we get the description. As if exhaling itself straight down from the sky, a vast moss-green balloon touched at the moon. But honestly, the logic of this doesn't make any sense. Where could it come from? How did the boys miss it? How is it above the moon, coming down onto the moon, and yet now only can we see it? Um The basket under the balloon, one of the boys calls. Someone in it. But then a tall man stepped down from the train caboose platform like a captain assaying the tidal weathers of this inland sea. All dark suit, shadow-faced, he waded to the center of the meadow, his shirt as black as the gloved hands he now stretched to the sky. He gestured once, and the train came to life." At first a head lifted in one window, then an arm, then another head like a puppet in a marionette theatre. Suddenly two men in black were carrying a dark tent pole out across the hissing grass. It was the silence that made Will pull back, even as Jim leaned forward, eyes moon-bright. A carnival should be all growls, roars like timberland stacked, bundled, rolled, and crashed, great explosions of lion dust, men ablaze with working anger, pot bottles jangling, horse buckles shivering, engines and elephants in full stampede through rains of sweat, while zebras neighed and trembled like cage trapped in cage. But this was like old movies, the silent theater haunted with black and white ghosts, silvery mouths opening to let moonlight smoke out, gestures made in silence so hushed you could hear the wind fizz the hair on your cheeks. More shadows rustled from the train, passing the animal cages where darkness prowled with unlit eyes, and the calliope stood mute, save for the faintest idiot tune the breeze piped wandering up the flues. The ringmaster stood in the middle of the land. The balloon, like a vast moldy green cheese, stood fixed to the sky. Then darkness came. The last thing Will saw was the balloon swooping down as clouds covered the moon. In the night, he felt the men rush to unseen tasks. He sensed the balloon like a great fat spider fiddling with the lines and poles, rearing a tapestry in the sky. The clouds arose. The balloon sifted up. In the meadow stood the skeleton main poles and wires of the main tent waiting for its canvas skin. More clouds poured over the white moon. Shadowed, Will shivered. He heard Jim crawling forward, seized his ankle, felt him stiffen. Wait, said Will, they're bringing out the canvas. No, said Jim. Oh, no. For somehow, instead, they both knew the wires high flung on the poles were catching swift clouds, ripping them free from the wind and streamers, which, stitched and sewn by some great monster shadow, made canvas and more canvas as the tent took shape. At last, there was the clear water sound of vast flags blowing. The motion stopped. The darkness within darkness was still. Will lay, eyes shut hearing the beat of great oil-black wings as if a huge ancient bird had drummed down to live, to breathe, to survive in the night meadow. The clouds blew away. The balloon was gone. The men were gone. The tents rippled like black rain on their poles. Suddenly, it seemed a long way to town. Now, again, on the one hand, we get a lot of that sort of fuzzy, hand-waving description, stuff that isn't evocative details. On the other, I should also emphasize that Bradbury is absolutely mixing his metaphors here. Like, take a look at that paragraph where we have the carnival should be all growls, roars like Timberland, stacked, bundled, rolled, and crashed. Like, again, we get all of those vivid, evocative words, all of those words that evoke sound and noise and the things that we're supposed to hear, but don't. On the one hand, we're Bradbury introduces all these very onomatopoeic, these very sound-oriented words, but with the emphasis that it should be that, and isn't. That instead, this was like old movies. The silent theater haunted with black and white ghosts. Silvery mouths opening to let moonlight smoke out. Gestures made in silence so hushed you could hear the wind fizz the hair on your cheeks. Notice, this is metaphors within metaphors here. This carnival isn't Crashing isn't rolling and timberlands stacked, explosions of lion dust, pop bottles jangling. It isn't those things, evocative as the language is. Instead, it is silent theater haunted with black and white ghosts. It's an old silent movie black and white, you know, like Nosferatu, which is all the scarier for the fact that we don't hear the language, that it is evoking sound we cannot hear, and that the silence it dwells in evokes the silence of the scene. Here we see something similar. Again, the carnival being set up silently, eerily, inappropriately silently, but at the same time, it's riddled with this language, the silence so hushed you could hear the wind fizz the hair on your cheeks. And again, it's kind of hard to say that this is good writing. It's hard to say that this is good writing at all. Most creative writers worth their salt would absolutely look at a passage like this and just reject it. This is terrible, most writers would say. This is totally not doing the job it's supposed to do. You're hearing the pop bottles jangling, even though there are no pop bottles jangling. That's the whole point of the paragraph. But at the same time, I think it does work. And that this is what Bradbury's genius actually lies in. Bradbury doesn't pay attention to what the actual feeling evoked by his language does. He's interested in the language for its own sake, the poetry of pop bottles jangling, even when it's absent the poetry of the silent film even when it's present. As much as you know Bradbury gets caught up in these images describing them with more and more evocative language distracting us from everything that's going on around us in some passages that's bad news like us not being able to track what is going on between Will and and Jim on the street that they choose not to go down ultimately. But on the other hand here it seems to work much better. Um, Not because it's meant to be disorienting, though there is a certain amount of that there. Again, these kids are out in the middle of the night, they feel certain things happening instead of seeing them, and we don't have any sort of library or index of of feelings to sort of adapt to this. But at the same time, it makes the whole situation unworldly, otherworldly. It makes everything disconnected from reality, it makes it feel surreal in a sense as though this is a Dali or a Magritte painting. It has the same sort of evocative surreality of something like the sequence where you know Stanley Kubrick shows the blood pouring down the elevator shaft and the shining. It doesn't make sense, but it doesn't need to make sense. And as much as the action and the images in this book are frequently disconnected from one another, we can't make sense of what's going on around us. We don't know why the characters are behaving the way that they are, or why the carnival inspires dread the way that it does. In some sense, Bradbury is telling us, not showing us, something that every creative writer worth their salt in this country would say is a bad move. But it works. It doesn't seem to work. Nobody knows why it works. I think that there are plenty of people who would say that it doesn't work, but for me at least, it works. The disorienting quality here functions. The dreamlike sense of all of these kids wandering around trying to contend with this carnival of horrors that itself doesn't seem all that horrifying, that only abstractly seems to mess with the lives of the people involved, that works. As much as we don't know why the carnival is scary, as much as it only seems to, like, touch these lives, like poor Miss Foley who gets kind of lost in the the maze of mirrors and then all of a sudden she's willing to let this nephew live with her even though it's secretly Mr. Cougar. Like, we don't know why they're behaving the way they do. This doesn't line up with our experience, but it doesn't have to. It touches on something more apocryphal, I think. Something more subconscious something more psychological. Um, It doesn't hit us logically, but that's okay because nothing about this novel functions logically. The relationship between Will and Jim isn't logical. They're poor polar opposites, but they're kids, so it doesn't matter. Their lives aren't logical. Like, Bradbury frequently gestures at experiences that we're all meant to have. You know, Jim's poke looking into the window where these this couple is having sex. Something that happens to boys, something that sort of indicates a sort of loss of innocence that taps into this whole deep network of emotions and feelings and, you know, the thoughts about adolescence and the way that we understand these things in media, books and movies, etc. For all of that, Bradbury trades on the fact that this is a familiar scene, and therefore he doesn't have to show us the logicality of it. We've already got the logicality of it. We know how these scenes pan out. We know how we reacted in in these situations. Bradbury feels comfortable tapping into the emotion without the reason, tapping into the feeling of the scene without the actual mechanics of the scene. And as much as we, again, are treated to a scene that would be traditional, familiar, and many of the other works that Bradbury is familiar with and trading on his own experience as well, again, a carnival setting up shop, Bradbury feels comfortable letting the sort of language get carried away not bothering with the actual mechanics of the description. Who cares where the balloon comes from? Who cares where the conductor comes from? Who cares about, you know, where are all of the people when he in fact summons them? It doesn't play out logically, but it doesn't have to play out logically because, as he emphasizes, it's not logical. It's like a puppet theater. It's feeling, not reality. It's all sensation, divorced from the logic that connects sensation. And I want to emphasize this because as much as it kind of works and kind of doesn't work, as much as this hits some people and misses others, it is consistent here. It is a deliberate decision on Bradbury's part to let this novel dwell in the spaces between rational thoughts rather than the rational thoughts themselves. It's not full surrealism. It's not totally dreamlike. There is a logic to it, but it is a logic divorced from the way that the stories like this tend to work. That's why it's not horror. It doesn't have that horror logic. Like, even a horror logic that is abstract, that is totally rooted in the subconscious, that is totally rooted in nightmare instead of dream, isn't what Bradbury is trafficking in here. His logic is his own. Something completely divorced from every other writer that you're likely to encounter. Bradbury is totally happy to let his images run one into the, into the next, just banging, crashing into each other. Let the metaphors just roll off the tongue without any pause between. And honestly, we've seen this before as well. This is Captain Beatty, you know, having his sort of imaginary conversation with Guy Montag, pitting Pope against Pope, and, you know, like, letting all of these various famous quotes just come spinning out without any relation to each other. Just like we saw in something like the Martian Chronicles, where we have the hot dog stand owner running away from the Martians and the ships sort of following after him, and him like, destroying them with a single gunshot in ways that seemed inexplicable. Bradbury doesn't care that it's inexplicable. And on some level, there's, you know, something negative about this. It's communicating to fewer people. But Bradbury just does it anyway. He writes for the sheer pleasure of writing. He writes because it makes sense to him. And if you tap into that wavelength, it will make a certain sort of sense to you as well. It will evoke the images that he is trying to reach here. It's just not given to us. It's not explained to us. There are no explanations to be had. The feeling is all here. Not even, you know, in the, the like, trying to make the feeling sharpened and clarified, to, like, have this razor-sharp emotion just cut right through us. But no, just that we feel. That we get the sense of what's going on in these passages, and not the logic. Because again, for so much of this book, the logic is not present. We don't understand the cause and effect of these actions. We don't understand why the lightning salesman is now a dwarf, or how Cougar is now this desiccated old man, or why he seems to come to life when they run an electric current through him. All of the science in this science fiction is gone, leaving only, again, the fantastic. Only this sense of reality instead of the reality itself. So with that in mind, let's talk about the third way that Bradbury connects this sort of style to what he's doing. So on the one hand, it doesn't work with the action, but the action is not a priority here. On the other hand, it does work with the description if in fact the description is meant to be this surreal sort of dark world that we're trying to interact with. But where it really works, I think, where Bradbury truly shines is when he ties the evocativeness of his description and this sort of like wild mixing of metaphors and and total disregard for grammar is where he ties it, weirdly enough, to the theme. So let's look forward a ways. Here in chapter 28, towards the end of the passage that we read for today, um, we get Will and his dad taking a moment. Like, Charles Holloway was at the library long into the night, as is often his habit, apparently. And he bumps into Will as they're coming back from the carnival after they've tried to, like, scope out the place and gotten in trouble because, you know, they followed Miss Foley home and tried to protect her from, you know, Mr. Cougar, only to get all of, like, the jewelry spread out. And then they follow Cougar back, and they have the altercation with the policeman. The entire night has taken place, and now Will is tired and is hanging out with his dad his dad is bringing him home. There was a long moment of silence. Page 134. Dad sighed. Dad took his arm, walked him over, and sat him down on the porch steps, relit his pipe. Puffing, he said, all right, your mother's asleep. She doesn't know we're out here with our tomcat talk. We can go on. Now look, since when did you think being good meant being happy? ''Since always,'' Will replied. ''Since now, learn otherwise. Sometimes the man who looks happiest in town, with the biggest smile, is the one carrying the biggest load of sin. There are smiles and smiles. Learn to tell the dark variety from the light. The seal barker, the laugh shouter, half the time he's covering up. He's had his fun, and he's guilty. And men do love sin, Will. Oh, how they love it. Never doubt, in all shapes, sizes, colors, and smells. Times come when troughs, not tables, suit our appetites. Hear a man too loudly praising others, and look to wonder if he didn't just get up from the sty. On the other hand, that unhappy, pale, put-upon man walking by, who looks all guilt and sin, why, often that's your good man, with a capital G, Will. For being good is a fearful occupation. Men strain at it, and sometimes break in two. I've known a few. You work twice as hard to be a farmer as to be his hog. I suppose it's thinking about trying to be good makes the crack run up the wall one night. A man with high standards, too. The least hair falls on him, sometimes wilts his spine. He can't let himself alone. Won't lift himself off the hook if he falls just a breath from grace. Oh, it would be lovely if you could just be fine, act fine, not think of it all the time. But it's hard, right? With the last piece of lemon cake waiting in the icebox middle of the night, not yours, but you lie awake in a hot sweat for it, huh? Do I need to tell you? a hot spring day noon and there you are chained to your school desk and away off there goes the river cool and fresh over the rock fall boys can hear clear water like that miles away so minute by minute hour by hour a lifetime it never ends never stops you got the choice this second now the next and the next after that be good be bad that's what the clock ticks that's what it says in the ticks run swim or stay hot run eat or lie hungry so you stay But once stayed, Will, you know the secret, don't you? Don't think of the the river again, or the cake, because if you do, you'll go crazy. Add up all the rivers never swum, and cakes never eaten, and by the time you get my age, Will, it's a lot missed out on. But then you console yourself, thinking the more times in, the more times possibly drowned, or choked on lemon frosting. But then, through plain dumb cowardice, I guess, maybe you hold off from too much. Wait, play it safe. Look at me. Married at 39, Will. 39! But I was so busy wrestling myself two falls out of three, I figured I couldn't marry until I had licked myself good and forever. Too late, I found you can't wait to become perfect. You gotta go out and fall down and get up with everybody else. So at last, I looked up for my great self-wrestling match one night when your mother came to the library for a book and got me instead. But I saw then and there. You take a man half bad and a woman half bad and put their two good halves together and you got one human all good to share between. That's you, Will, for my money. The strange thing is, son, and sad too, though you're always racing out there on the rim of the lawn and me on the roof using books for shingles, comparing life to libraries, I soon saw you were wiser, sooner and better than I will ever be. Now, if we tried to describe the actual business that is being talked about here, what Charles Hathaway is actually telling his son, it would be very tricky. Like, we would probably start with, hey, look, there's a big thematic, like, question here. You know, the big question that we're asking is, hey, since when did you think being good meant being happy, let me tell you otherwise. Being good does not mean happy. Sinners tend to be happier than good people. Oftentimes, it's the one who looks guilty who is, in fact, doing the most good. At the very least, because he's contemplating, because he's thinking about it, because he's you know, ruminating rather than just doing what he feels like doing. But importantly, we transition. How easy it is to be sinful. If how lovely it would be if you could just be fine, act fine, with the last piece of lemon cake waiting in the icebox, not yours, or for that matter, on a hot spring day noon, and there you are, change your school desk, and away off there goes the river. Now notice. Charles, like Bradbury generally, we've seen it in some of these other passages, frequently truncates the language here. Like, again, totally agrammatical. He'll drop subjects and just rush straight to the verbs. He knows where we're at. We don't need to waste time actually dotting our I's and crossing our T's here. So notice the way the language works there. It's hard, right? Question mark, but not the end of the sentence, lowercase w, with the last piece of lemon cake, waiting in the icebox, middle of the night, not yours, but you lie awake in a hot sweat for it, huh? Like, what is this sentence, even? But it's hard, right? That's the basic sentence here. Like, it's hard is in fact a full sentence, like we're dealing with it is hard, i.e. subject it verb is hard predicate. But at the same time, with the last piece of lemon cake waiting in the icebox, that's not a sentence. That's not even close to a sentence. And it has nothing to do with the it is hard, or rather the it of it is hard, nor the hardness of it is hard. Instead, we've introduced a whole new subject, the last piece of lemon cake waiting in the icebox. But is this the subject or the object? Technically, it's the object because you are the subject here. The last piece of lemon cake is tempting you, not yours, you say, but you lie awake in a hot sweat for it. Like, language, grammar, all of the rules have gone on holiday, and yet Bradbury gets his point across. It's hard to sit there, to ignore the last piece of lemon cake sitting in the icebox, when you want it that bad, even though it's not yours. Knowing that it's there wanting it for yourself but it's not yours to take boys can hear a clear water like that miles away so minute by minute hour by hour a lifetime it never ends never stops you got the choice this second now this next and the next after that be good be bad that's what the clock ticks that's what it says in the ticks again take it on its own this sentence is totally meaningless totally agrammatical. but in the context boys can hear a clear water like that miles away, we feel it. We feel the desire, sitting in class, watching that clock tick away on an otherwise gorgeous day where we could be out having fun in the river and being forced to sit, forced to be good in some sense. We get the sense of it, even if we don't get the logic of it again. What Bradbury is telling us, what Charles is telling his son, is that Yes, being good is hard, and more than that, it's tedious, it sucks, it's frequently just plain unpleasant, and we have to train ourselves not to think about these things in order to continue to be good and feel decent about it, feel like we haven't missed all of these experiences. But notice that he transitions again in the third paragraph, Um, or leading up to the third paragraph, Add up all the rivers never swum in, cakes never eaten, and by the time you get my age, Will, it's a lot missed out on. But then you console yourself, thinking the more times in, the more times properly drowned or choked on lemon frosting. But then, through plain dumb cowardice, I guess, maybe you hold off from too much. Wait, play it safe. Notice we have another transition here, another new thought that's been introduced, something that's on Charles' mind, presumably Bradbury's as well. What if this is just cowardice? What if we are consoling ourselves into thinking that we are good, but really what we are doing is justifying our own fear, justifying our own wishes? Like what we are saying is, hey, you know, I guess we missed out on all those times in the river, which now instead of being presented as something sinful, as something bad, as something that we must necessarily fight, resist in order to be the decent upstanding people we are, Charles is now saying, well, for me, at least, it's just indicative not of goodness, but of cowardice. Charles, on some level, isn't willing to admit that he is fighting the good fight, that he is not wearing the white hat, which, again, is sort of hovering over this whole discussion. Charles now realizes that being good is a stand-in for cowardice, that we are afraid to leave class, that we are afraid to take the lemon. Square from the freezer that we are afraid to disrupt the order of things afraid that there might be negative repercussions and we use in some sense that cowardice to justify ourselves you console yourself thinking the more times in the more times possibly drowned or choked on lemon frosting but then we change it again look at me married at 39 will but i was so busy wrestling myself two falls out of three i figured i couldn't marry until i had licked myself good and forever too late, I found you can't wait to become perfect. you got to go out and fall down and get up with everybody else. Like, on some level, we're right to ask, what is he even saying here? What is the logic underlining this, this discussion? What is he, in fact, telling Will to do? Like, on the one hand, we start out with a really clear question. Are good people happy? The answer is no. Not just the answer is no, but the answer is good people aren't even necessarily good. It's more complicated. The people who console themselves into thinking that they are good are often consoling themselves for their own cowardice, disguising to themselves, we are good, not cowards, even though they are, at the end of the day, cowards, that they are wrestling themselves two times out of three, that they are overthinking these things, and really, at the end of the day, the proper thing to do is to just go up, fall down with everybody else, get in trouble, make mistakes, and indeed, indulge, presumably, in sin? Question mark. Is that what we're saying? But Charles ultimately concludes, like, yeah, he is, in fact, sinning. It is a more complicated sin than we were talking about originally. Like, yes, it's easy to indulge in the lemon square, to, like, take it without anybody caring and just take it for ourselves. But when you're talking about, you know, going out to the river, is it, in fact, goodness or is it just cowardice that causes you to stay in your seat? Is it goodness or is it cowardice that causes a man to not get married until 39? to keep overthinking the situation. And Charles ultimately concludes, yeah, he's a sinner. He's a different kind of sinner than the person who just rushes into things and takes what they want. He's the kind of sinner who sits on the sidelines and refuses to engage, even though he's ultimately losing track of his whole life. This is the danger of goodness, in some sense, that we get so high on our own goodness that we end up using it to justify our own cowardice, or vice versa. And in doing so, missing out on life. But Charles consoles himself here as well. At least he has Will. Will is good, through and through. Will is the best of both Charles and his wife, is the best of both of them. Charles can downplay his evil in front of his son and train his son up in goodness at the same time as his wife corrects Charles's tendency towards cowardice and reticence. And I want to emphasize, Bradbury doesn't say any of this. And on some level, it isn't logical. It isn't sensible. If we were trying to get at what is the theme of this book, you will be left trying. But somehow I managed to just spend 15 minutes taking apart these three paragraphs and somehow Bradbury, through his illogical, irrational like sense consciousness sort of evocative imagery here, gets at this way more powerfully than logical explanation can. He gets at it way more efficiently than the logical explanation can. And on some level, we do understand the fundamental themes here. We get from that first discussion where, you know, Jim and Will come to the library and Charles tells them, you know, Jim always wears the black hat. Sure, now he's wearing, you know, he's reading the, the stuff about dinosaurs. You need a white hat or a black hat book, he asks. But he explains, he wears the ten... or the black 10-gallon hats and reads books to fit. Middle name's Moriarty, right, Jim? Any day now, he'll move up from Fu Manchu to Machiavelli here, medium-sized dark fedora, or over along to Dr. Faustus, extra-large black stetson. That leaves the white hat boys to you, Will. Here's Gandhi, next door is St. Thomas, and on the next level, well, Buddha. On some level, the reason why Jim and Will make sense to us, even though they don't make sense is because they're characterized in this way. Jim is possessed of darkness. Not evil, that's a different thing, but darkness. Jim is inclined to it. His last name is Nightshade. His father is dead, and he lacks that sort of guiding force, that moral dimension to him. He's got his mom, sure, and he's trying to live up to her standards, but Jim's inclination to temptation is overwhelming. He's the one that wants to go to the theater and see the naked people having sex. This is fascinating to him. He's the one who Cougar manages to sucker into getting onto the carousel, and Will has to drag him down, stop him. And on some level, Bradbury is showing us that this darkness is powerful in its own right. In a way that Charles Halloway's lightness cannot be powerful. Jim can stop things from happening. Jim fights. Jim gets into life and wrestles with it, where Will and Charles stand back too fearful. But Jim needs Will to stop him. Like Jim keeps telling Will, you'll come after me, won't you? When I go doing something stupid, you'll be the one sensibly stopping me. But at the same time, without Jim's tendency towards getting into his own head, to taking life by the horns, Will would just be sitting at home cowardly and too careful to get anything done. And yet, Will's concern for Jim is what leads him to go out and do this stuff. It's not Jim who fights the witch in the balloon in chapter 30, it's Will. Will protecting Jim. Will protecting Jim because Jim has already rushed in over his head. Jim, who carried Will off into the night to see the carnival set up in the first place when Will knew that that was a bad idea. Bradbury's dynamism here is at the same time inexplicable, indescribable. The themes are, again, titanic battle between good and evil, but the mechanics of it are revealed in the spaces between, in the spaces between the logical explanation. And on some level, it drives a philosopher like me nuts to think that, like, there's this rich underlying dream logic and, and nonsensical reality that, like, you can't even necessarily describe. And like, why even bother to try and do a podcast on this book, which is so riddled with this kind of linguistic, you know, shadow game? But at the same time, that's why I want to talk about it. That's why this book puzzles and, and fascinates me. Because it evades that description. Because it gets at something more true than capital T true. It gets at something that underlies philosophy and logic and rationality. It tantalizes. And as much as I see myself in the likes of Charles and his hesitance, his you know keen desire for the beautiful woman in the, the ice prison, as much as I recognize myself in all of these characters who are, you know, looking back on their lives and saying, hey, I want the things that I missed. I want to go back in time. I want to be young again like Mrs. Foley. I want to ride the carousel backwards and and re-experience all those things that I gave up the first time around. You know, Charles recognizing, why did I get married so late? Why did I have a child so late? How is it that I'm, you know, pushing 50, pushing 60, and I'm supposed to engage with this kid? You know, that's the thing that Charles is so scared about at this point. When he confesses to his wife, how can I be a good father to a boy 40 years my junior? That I get. That makes sense. It is about the desire that underlies logic. Like any good Stoic would say, well, yes, resist these temptations. It makes you a worse person. It makes you, you know, enslaved to these things. And Bradbury is saying that too. You know, you see Miss Foley, you see Jim, you see how dangerous their lives are, how close they are to losing it all, to throwing their souls away to this carnival. We see the after effects of the people who have been taken by this. The poor lightning rod salesman shriveled up, or the dust witch barely even human anymore. Is she, in fact, like a fortune teller in a box or something else? It's hard to say. It doesn't make sense. How can the same woman who's like the fortune teller in the box also be the one guiding the balloon? But it doesn't matter. What these things are, are beyond physical entities. In this book, where we don't have to traffic in visual language or, you know, the logic that just gets objects onto a screen, where it can just be words divorced from reality, Bradbury can let your mind wander, can let you play and make sense of the senseless. He can contradict himself. He can give us these scenarios that are logically totally absurd, and we will make it happen. Or at the very least, in wondering how it could be, we'll realize how deep into this darkness we've actually come. What's so potent about the language here is that disconnection. The fact that Bradbury can, in fact, just give us the images, give us the feelings, the sense, and then let us work out the logic as much or as little as we see fit. The plot isn't important here. What's important are the people and their feelings. Jim and his rushing forward towards destruction, but his strength in the face of it, and Will constantly holding back, but with the strength of character to keep Jim going too far. Charles, in his weakness, trying to teach his son how to be a good person, how to be strong in the face of all this evil, and yet himself being not strong in front of the temptations that he faces, being weakened by his own old age, and trusting that Will will be a better man than he is. That's what we take away. And on the other side, we take away the horror, the darkness, We see the illustrated man, Mr. Dark, who we don't understand why he's scary, but we know that he is because he lies, because the boys tell us that he's scary, because the hair standing up on their arms tells us that he's scary. We know that the barber is dead. But we don't know why we know that the Barber is dead. We just know that Will tells us that the Barber is dead, that he feels that the Barber is dead, and therefore we're forced to conclude that the Carnival is responsible for this as well. We don't know why the Lightning Salesman is now a dwarf. We don't know why we know that the Lightning Salesman is now a dwarf, but we know because Will tells us, because the feeling is there. In a sense, we never see any of the real darkness here. We never see why we're supposed to be scared, we just are. Will is scared, Jim is scared, and we're left to fill in the gaps. We don't know why it's scary, why they feel the way they do, but they do. And we are treated to this, again, as spook show. We are not allowed to see the mechanics behind the scene. We don't get to explore the inner workings of the haunted house. We just see what we are shown that's the difference i think bradbury is showing us what he thinks is scary he shows us these characters these situations these images these dark manifestations of nightmares and horrors the mechanics behind the carnival without the actual mechanism that drives them the things that make up a freak show without the reason why they are freaks. He leaves us to wonder how real the freakiness actually is. Is Cougar dead or alive? Are they in fact waiting for the carnival carousel to be fixed before they can repair him, or is he beyond repair? We don't know. We're not shown why. We're not shown the, the sort of driving force of the opposition here, of the antagonists. There's, again, no logic. And in a sense, as a result, there's very little in the way of dread. In the same way that Poe shows us the slowly, gradually descending pendulum, and we wait, knowing that it will eventually cut flesh, knowing that will it will eventually cause harm, here we have the opposite. Here we have a pendulum with no descent, and yet a pendulum that is frightening nonetheless. But it is frightening not to us, but to the characters. The logic is suspended. The dread isn't present. We are in the haunted house. We don't know what is coming up next. We can't see where things are going. The dread is, so what now? instead of there being this dread of an ominous, obvious threat, instead we get the dread of not knowing, of recognizing that every scene could be something radically different, and that there might be horror around the corner, or there might be comfort, or there might be a moment of great character development, or anything. We don't know. And again, in some ways, it doesn't work if we are looking for a horror experience. But if we submit to it, if we just accept what Bradbury is offering, recognize, take it in, just being here for the ride, thats well, a heck of a ride to be on, I tend to think. So once again, I want to stress, like, there's a lot that this novel could be, and there are a lot of ways to read this novel poorly, because there are a lot of frameworks and assumptions and perspectives that we've already well developed that we carry into this book with us. We expect a certain quality of writing, which Bradbury doesn't deliver. We expect a certain quality of storytelling, which Bradbury doesn't deliver. We expect a certain nature of scariness and horror, which Bradbury doesn't deliver. But what Bradbury does deliver can resonate if you're just willing to listen. Bradbury doesn't tell you how to read this book and there are a lot of ways that we come in thinking we're supposed to read it one way or the other which turns out to be wrong. And part of what I truly love about it is that it is that different. That it isn't in any of those genres, that it doesn't conform to any of those usual ways of thinking. Remember in Fahrenheit 451 our original, you know, epigraph what Bradbury leads us on, you know, when presented with lined paper right the other way on some level fahrenheit 451 accomplishes that by showing us guy montag doing that guy montag rejecting the system trying to learn to think in other ways and arguably not succeeding like ultimately fahrenheit 451 is not the story of some hero overthrowing the system it is the story of a man who manages to escape to safety just in time for everyone to start thinking about how do you do things now that the old way isn't going to work. But here in Something Wicked This Way Comes, we see something else. Namely, Bradbury taking his own advice to heart, totally throwing away conventional wisdom about genre, about storytelling, about language, about grammar, and seeing if he can come up with something completely different, something truly original, in a sense. And whether or not he succeeds again It's hard to say because each person is going to react to this differently because, again, we do not have the apparatus in place for appreciating this. You know, every work we've talked about, every book out there, every story ever told exists in a context, exists in relation to other stories, in relation to other genres. And Bradbury deliberately rejecting so much of the trappings of so many other genres, embracing his own sort of weird hodgepodge collection of sensibilities and language, and metaphorical trickery, will definitely turn people off. But I admire him for making so daring a move regardless. Say what you want about something wicked this way comes. It is not like any other book you have ever read unless that book is another one of Bradbury's. So I do want to talk about more of the stuff that's going on here. I would love to talk about some of the dark monsters that we encounter but honestly because we know so little about them at this point it's hard to say. So next time we're going to finish this and we're going to talk about the actual meat of the story rather than talking about sort of the approach and the different sort of techniques that bradbury is using we will talk about the ending and what is actually being said if it can even be explained um for next time let's finish something wicked this way comes continue our ride and see where it leads us i look forward to talking about it with you soon Hey, thanks for listening. I look forward to having some new content out next week for you. In the meantime, I highly recommend that you check out my other projects on professorkozlowski.wordpress.com, which is the sort of center for all of the things I'm doing online these days. Um, And please, if you like this, share it, subscribe to it, send it out, get everybody to know that I'm making lectures and talking about something that you're interested in. Um, The more listeners I have, the more people I have following me, the better chance there is that I'll be able to continue doing this. And if you can, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Professor Kozlowski. I've already got a few patrons. We are up and running. uh, But the more money I'm making through this project, the more I can devote my time and energy to my projects online, and the less I have to worry about things like rent and feeding myself. Um, So please keep keep listening, keep sharing, keep subscribing, and as much as you can, keep contributing. Uh, I'll see you soon.